Chapter Eight of Murder in the Sacristy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord S. J. Chapter Eight. I think it was the very fact that Riley had from the start been sure who the guilty man was that made him do what he did. Perhaps Father Tierney was also implicated in the sorry mess. I could see why, needing money as he did for the work he meant to do in Russia. He might be tempted to inveigle Carl into the plot that climaxed when the unexpected interference of Radoff, the sacristan, brought on the ghastly murder. But at all events, Carl was clearly in the thing up to his neck, and only the barrier of an ugly rope could stop its rising. I don't like to think of death, and death for a friend. At any rate, we left the church together, Riley and I, and we walked slowly down Blue Island Avenue. Riley didn't talk and I didn't want to. Finally, Riley said, I'm having a round-up of a lot of the suspects. I'm picking them up on, oh, any of a half-dozen charges. We're taking them all to headquarters. No, we'll take them to Providence Hospital. Somehow, in that little room of Reinhardt's, I'm going to get the truth out of them. All the suspects, I demanded, for through my mind flashed the long list. Father Tierney, the Countess, Miss Whitecliffe, the Senator's wife, that Japanese butler who was an espionage agent. Schwartz, Carl. All of them, he answered, and we let it go at that. I left him at headquarters, and since I had some business of my own that I had shamefully neglected, I was off to care for it, with the understanding that we'd meet again in the lobby of Providence Hospital that evening at eight. I'll have them all there, Riley said grimly, though whether it will do the least good, I don't know. I shook his hand sadly. Listen, Riley, I said, not minding the fact that what I said would sound a little on the sentimental side. If the guilty person does turn out to be Father Tierney, or Carl, don't be surprised if I blow town for a while. I just couldn't stand it if those two friends of mine. He gave my hand a little extra pressure that showed that he did understand. There is a little reception room that opens off the main parlor of Providence Hospital. Ordinarily, it is reserved for doctors who want to sit and talk, but the sisters had turned it over to Riley, and I joined him there. Through the half-closed doorway, we could watch the slow assembly of the strange people who had been brought together in the circle of this crime. Miss Whitecliffe came first, looking down her nose contemptuously at the nun who ushered her into the parlor and thanking her with a phrase that sounded like an icicle dropping onto the surface of a frozen lake. She inspected the parlor with critical disapproval, and perched on a chair, sitting on the edge with her hands tightly folded, and her lips one thin line of white flesh. The sister who ushered Father Tierney in was full of regrets about the sad events that had marked the beginnings of his work as a priest. But, she assured him, in all sincerity, a priest who begun with so terrible a trial would undoubtedly be blessed by God. At which Miss Whitecliffe pulled in her breath so emphatically that she sounded like a vacuum cleaner biting on a particularly tough piece of grit. Schwartz walked in in military fashion, saluted the priest with an uplifted hand, and stood with his back rigidly against the wall. The little Jap slipped into the room noiselessly, unobtrusively, as if he really were a butler, instead of the nobleman we knew him to be. Senator Goodspeed came with his wife. The whole business was obviously profoundly distressing to him, yet clearly he had no alternative but to come, and pray a gentle providence that reporters would be absent or blind. The Countess arrived in a swirl of unseen sables. 
Somehow she always suggested sables, no matter what she happened to be wearing. This time it was a quite modest suit, with no suggestion of richness about it. The men all stood honoring her beauty, and she acknowledged the greetings with an aloof, weary bow. I was a little amazed when the last man to enter was Mo Kleinman, whom I knew through our experiences at the barrier smoke shop. Riley let them stew in their own nervous suspense before he signaled me quietly and with a quick jerk threw the door wide open. They all turned toward him, as if they had been jerked by strong, though invisible strings, and as I slipped to the side, he closed the parlor doors and spoke briefly. I don't need to tell you, any of you, why you are here. Before you leave, I am going to know something that one, or perhaps two of you know. You may as well be told now as later that I already have learned far more than the wisest and cleverest of you suspect. We need a few last items, and our case is complete. Schwartz looked over the crowd with a twisted sneer. These police, he said, everywhere they are such wonderful actors and such wretched doers. I watched the Countess rise slowly, all her languid charm turned on for the benefit of the men present. It is distressing. None of this save the return. Please, the good God, of my jewels can concern me. Still. Riley flung open the door that led into the hall. Come, he commanded, and as he led us toward the stairs, I noticed that from nowhere in particular two plainclothes men had come to take up the rear. No one was going to slip away unnoticed. Deliberately, Riley avoided the elevator and led us to the stairs. At the first landing, the senator was puffing slightly. The unaccustomed walk up the second flight caused the countess to hold her heart ostentatiously. Schwartz, who suddenly began to dance attendance upon her, took her arm. She smiled faintly and gently shook him off. Room 339 was closed. We paused before it until our whole party was assembled. Then Riley laid his hand on the doorknob. You will, he said. Find it a little congested in here. The word struck me as a crass understatement. But if what I expect from you moves with dispatch. He flung open the door and took one step. Then he fell back as if in complete surprise. And surprise it was. For as I craned over the startled heads of the assembled suspects, I too saw what he had seen, and it amazed me. In the bed lay no sick man, but a man dressed for the street, even to his hat. Only he was not resting there calmly. He was squirming and tossing under the bondage of the white sheets that had been twisted into the ropes that held him tight. And as Riley dashed into the room and flicked on the full light, I saw that the man was the detective, who that morning had been left to guard Carl Reinhardt. He was gagged and bound and fastened to the bed. But of Carl there was no slightest trace, except an opened window that led onto a fire escape. It took only a minute for Riley to slip the gag out of the hapless detective's mouth and cut the sheets that held him captive. The rest of us crowded in the doorway, knowing in a flash what this meant. It was as plain as if Carl had written his confession and left it pinned to the pillow. The others knew this, too, and I could feel a rush of exhausting yet exhilarating relief sweep through them. Riley turned. Back to the parlor, please. All of you. Except you he said, courteously thinking of me even in that emergency. He signaled the detectives who, like faithful sheepdogs, were hurting the crowd down the corridor. Then he slammed the door and sat on the bed, looking at the detective, who, 
disheveled and furious, towered above both of us. Well, Riley demanded, what happened? Tell us quick. The detective fairly spluttered his story, but in spite of his irate confusion and indignation, the thing was clear enough. Carl had pretended to be far sicker than he really was, so the detective had relaxed his guard. His chair propped against the door, he even dozed a bit, while Carl lay in apparently genuine coma. Finally, Carl had asked him for a drink. He gave it to him, leaning far over the bed, and even lifting the sick man's head in an effort to relieve the apparent weakness. The next thing the startled detective knew, a pillow slip was over his head, and a rap hit him full on the chin. Before he could yell, Carl had hit him with something. "'The telephone,' said Riley, picking up the heavy continental phone and balancing it. And when the detective regained consciousness, he was lying gagged and tied in bed. "'How long ago?' demanded Riley. The detective was rather vague. Evidently his coma had been something more like a sleep. He thought it might have been two hours. "'Come on,' said Riley, and he sprinted for the door. I followed him, glad that he still included me, regretful that I might have to be in on the capture of my friend. The suspects were all gone by this time, and when we reached the ground floor, the murmur of voices told us that they had once more been herded into the parlor. I had thought that Riley would head for the street. Instead, he sharply veered off toward the parlor, I still on tow, and entered, banging the door behind him. The group, which had been thrown into conversation by the community of their surprise and relief, stopped speaking and stood facing him expectantly. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' said Riley, his face somewhat purple from embarrassment, "'policemen in the interest of their duty sometimes have to do strange and annoying things. I have caused you all considerable trouble during these last few days.' Miss Whitecliffe's snort was loud in agreement. "'But I assure you that now we definitely know the culprit.' Father Tierney burst out in protest. I know it's not Carl, he cried. Believe me, it's not he. There is some explanation for his running away. He turned to me. Pierre, he pleaded, you know he's not guilty. I took his hand silently and shook it. Riley watched him cynically. Frankly, he said, I may as well tell you, Father Tierney, that I am not sure he has been alone in this, and if it turns out... I heard the Countess gasp. She was looking straight at the door, which had opened so quietly that none of us had heard it. We all turned, impelled by her gasp. There in the doorway, with his head still bound in blood-stained bandages, but with his street clothes on and a suitcase in his hand, stood Carl Reinhardt. Carl, cried the priest. Grab him fast, the detective barked it. But short though the order was, his two assistants had closed in on Carl before it was finished. Carl smiled at them and said, "'That's all right, buddies. I have no least intention of running away.' And shaking them off with a convincing gentleness, he walked across the room to the little table that stood with geometric precision in the very center of the parlor. All the while my eyes were on that suitcase. I knew his luggage, and this was not his. And it must have been observably light, if one could judge from the way a man whose sickness had been only partly faked was swinging it. "'Rally round!' he said, and he turned toward the expectant group. This is just a little surprise that I have for all of you. Then, as we all pressed forward, he opened the suitcase and, flinging to right and left the loosely crumpled newspapers that filled the grip, pulled out a cigar box and then a second cigar box. 
With maddening delay, he broke the strings that bound them and poured onto the center of the table the missing jewels. It is simply impossible to describe the expressions that followed this dramatic gesture. Everyone stood with his eyes riveted on that pile of precious stones for which one man, or perhaps two men, had died. I saw the detective near the door pull his gun and hold it loosely against his side. He knew what the sight of jewels did to the greedy human heart. "'They're mine!' suddenly screamed the countess, all the veneer of culture falling from her, and she stood over them as if to protect them from even the eyes of the others. Riley pushed her aside, rudely, roughly. "'They belong to the state until a lot of things are proved.' He turned to Carl, and there was venom in his voice. "'It won't do you a bit of good,' he said in a low, penetrating voice. "'Turning back the jewels when we have you cornered isn't going to get you out of the double charge.' He lifted his voice. "'In the name of the law, I arrest you for the murder of Radoff and Linsky, and I warn you that anything you say may be used against you.' Again the others gasped, and I saw the flash of steel handcuffs as Riley brought them from his pocket. "'Just a minute.' said Carl, as smoothly and coolly as if he had been invited out for a cheese on rye and a cool beer. This isn't over yet. I'm willing to go along, Riley, if you'll prove I'm guilty. But, and he swept the assembled group with his eyes, there's one person here who knows I didn't do it, and I'm going to ask that person to speak up to prevent an innocent man going to jail. I saw Father Tierney start. For myself, I looked straight at Carl. It was the kind of thing you might have expected a devout Catholic like Carl to do. Let himself seem to be the criminal to shield his priest, and then at the end lose his nerve and ask the priest to confess. Riley shook his head angrily. I've had enough of this nonsense, Reinhardt, he said. Briefly, the case against you is so clear I need hardly repeat it. You were found in the church with the dead man. You were out of the house and in reach of Linsky when he came to tell on you. You are an organist, and would think of an organ as a place to hide the jewels. You pretended to be knocked out in the church, and found the trick so good that you tried it the second time, when you planned really to make away with the jewels. You are the one who suggested putting the jewels back into the organ, and I fell for your gag, fell for it, and gave you the chance to go and get the jewels during your own night watch. The brick-and-hammer trick has been tried too often to be anything but old stuff, and now that we have all this piled up against you, you are able to produce the jewels. You who stole them in the first place, and hid them, and stole them again. Now that things are too hot for you, you try turning them back. And to top it all, this drama of trying to pin the thing on one of the others. No go, Carl. Hold out your hands for the cuffs. Carl looked the crowd over again, this time almost beseechingly. I tell you all I'm innocent. You're not going to let this happen to me, are you? Won't the guilty one of you confess? I, began Father Tierney. Carl shot at him with almost savage speed. Shut up, Father. He slowly walked around the room, looked quietly at each in succession. They winced, or turned their eyes away, or outstared him, or shook their heads in angry or sorry protest. But none made the least sign of confession. At last he came to me. Goodbye, Pierre, he said quietly. I'm sorry. I took his hand. I'm sorry, too, I said, very close to tears. When I'm gone, he went on, you can have your suitcase back. What are you talking about? I demanded, 
and I felt the hot blood rush to my face. He walked over to the table, closed the suitcase, and held it out to me, and from the top stirred the letters P.A. Your suitcase, Pierre, he said, and then turning to Riley, he said, very quietly, I'm sorry I have to do this, Sergeant, but if you move fast, you can lay your hands on the murderer and thief we're looking for, Pierre Anton. I don't know what happened in those next few minutes. I only know that something inside me broke. I didn't laugh at him and defy the charge. The other unexpectedness of the whole thing threw me completely off my normal calm balance. I struck out at Carl, I lashed out at Riley, and I plunged for the door and escaped. Only the detective in the doorway tripped me, and I fell forward on my face. And they were on top of me. Me, who knew that if I could have kept my head and not let the other surprise of a thing betray me into one false step, I'd have bluffed them out. Instead, I now have to sign my name to this, my confession. But let me tell you that I almost succeeded. I almost succeeded in pinning the murder on that contemptible God-loving priest, who had set himself to go back and sell the opium of religion to my fellow countrymen in the glorious, godless Soviet. I almost had by the throat Schwartz and his filthy band of Nazis, who were making war on communism and shutting up in their concentration camps in Germany, my comrades of the Third International. I almost regained the jewels that belonged, not to any countess, her family red with the blood of peasants, but to the people. If I had regained those stones, they would have gone back to serve the Soviet, to help free the workers of the world, to buy the bombs that would blow up the capitalistic nations. Had I succeeded, that priest would not have gone into my Russia. The Nazis would have rotted in jails. The Countess would have been stripped of her ill-gotten jewels, and I should have returned to Moscow, from which I proudly come, an honored man, a power in the party, a hero to my people. But I failed. Still, I am like the other martyrs of human justice. To me, blood was nothing, if I could through blood reach my noble ends. Only I should like to know how they found out it was I. Knowing that, I think I should die happy for the cause that is mine, Stalin's and the Third International's. End of chapter 8 Recording by Maria Therese